Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one in the pew in front of you, and I hope you use it today because you'll need to follow along with uh, some of the places we're going to go. I have always tried to make it a practice to not speak on politics from the pulpit. I don't believe that's the place to do it. This is God's house. This is God's word. And we gather to worship God and look at his word. Um, But I'm going to talk a little bit about politics today. And I'm going to give you the preface there ahead of time so you can prepare yourself. Because it's such a divisive topic. I'll put my cards on the table. I'm a registered Republican. I'm conservative, both physically and socially. That's who I am. That has no bearing on what I'm about to say this morning. But from time to time, God will change my direction in preaching. I, uh, I'll have a plan, and something else will come to the forefront. And uh, every time I've followed that leaning, God has directed me, I believe, the right way. It was a message that was suiting for the church at that time. Um, I had a plan to preach from 1 John this morning, and then on Monday morning, God brought 1 Timothy chapter 2 to my mind. And I thought, okay. So I thought about that and prayed about that and thought, let's go with this. And, and as I thought about this text and, and studied it, and as the week progressed, it became clear that this is where God was turning my mind to go. So that's what we're doing today. You see, I cannot accurately for you put into words the way I felt on Wednesday as I, as I watched what was happening at our Capitol building. I've talked to several of you and, and uh, a range of emotions, a range of thoughts, a range of feelings. Honestly, I have really not been able to articulate the way I have felt all year as we have watched groups and and people and leaders do and say things that they have done. And as I've seen, just as you have too, there's been so much inconsistency and, and dishonesty. It has been frustrating. And the way I feel is it's a mix of anger and it's a mix of helplessness and a mix of revulsion. There are times I turn off my television just angry. And I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. You know, and um, there have been times I've held people and leaders in derision in my heart this year. Thought things I probably shouldn't have thought. Felt things I know I probably shouldn't be feeling. Things that probably weren't honoring to God. And I know you have too. Um, there have been times where I felt like my faith and then my sense of what I feel is right and what is wrong were not on the same page. And that's a frustrating way to feel. I've never been a person who I would say is apathetic or didn't care what was going on with politics or with my country. I've always cared. I'm kind of a history nut. I I follow government. It's it's always been right in my wheelhouse, and so I've always cared. I've never been apathetic, but I've, I've never considered myself to be extreme in the way I feel, in my words or my thoughts. I've always tried to be balanced and reasonable and biblical. That's always been my aim. Imperfectly, but that's always been my aim. But I feel like that position is becoming harder and harder to take in the country we live in. And I'm not just talking about what happened this past week. Uh, This has been amping up, 
I feel like more and more as the years progressed, and not just in America. Last Sunday, I was frustrated as I read a news story of just what happened north of us in Ontario and Canada, where six elders of a church were criminally charged for holding in-church, in-person church services. What we're doing right now, these six elders, we have five elders, you know, Chuck, Brad, Jeff, and Adam, and myself, these six guys were criminally charged for holding a church service. They're now facing, they have to go to criminal court and they're facing $10,000 fines each for doing this. And one of the uh, statements that they made, one of them said, we are peaceful family men seeking to pastorally care for our families and our church in sincere obedience to God. We are not criminals. I worry that that position of being peaceful Christian people who care for their church and care for their families and are seeking to obey God with their lives is one that is becoming more and more difficult to hold in this world today. It seems that the people in power, it seems that the people with the platforms on either side of the aisle, politically, okay, and in the civilian realm, are less and less interested in caring at all about what God thinks and obeying God. And we've seen among Christians in our country various reactions to that. We've seen direct, boisterous defiance and rebellion from some Christians. We have seen humble civil disobedience from some Christians where, where they, they're resolved to do whatever God wants them to do and they'll take the consequences and trust that God will take care of them in that. We've seen insulting and hateful rhetoric come out of the mouths of Christians this year towards their leaders, about their leaders, and towards each other if there's different views, right? Because if we don't disagree, if we don't agree, we must be enemies. That's the world we live in right now. And then we've seen some Christians who have just bowed to all the pressure and locked arms with the world and have gone their own way. And that's been sad to watch. We've seen that in the world, and quite frankly, as your pastor, I've seen it in our church. Our church is a microcosm of the various views that exist in this world today. I talk to a lot of you, I listen to a lot of you, and you are all not in agreement. I'm not telling you who disagrees with who, that's dangerous. But that's the world we live in right now. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like this past week of prayer and fasting has been a very good thing for our church. I'm also thankful that God's word guides us as Christians in how to respond, even to leaders who do not lead from a position of faith in Jesus Christ, to leaders that we have no respect for, to leaders who do not make moral decisions or wise decisions, or leaders who verbally and legislatively persecute Christians. God's word is not silent on how to deal with this, guys. And that's what we're gonna look at today. I could go to many places in the Bible to talk about this. Go to Romans 13, talk about submitting to authority. I could do that in 1 Peter. I could go to Jesus and what he said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and God what is God's. I could do all that. And you should do that. I hope that right now, as you live in this world, your Bible study is, is in response to what you see. You, you look at what's going on and say, what does God's word have to say to me about this? Because I know what everyone else is telling me to do, and I know what my heart is telling me to do. What does God's word say? I hope you're doing that. We have to do that. 
But today, in keeping with our church's commitment that this week is a week of prayer and fasting, even though this is Sunday, it's the last day, we're not done, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because specifically I want us to see that at the very bare minimum, what every single Christian in this room owes to their leaders is to pray for their soul. You can't shrug your shoulders and say, not doing it. I've had some say that to me. We're gonna see what God's word says about this. And I hope that we can see that the answer to the chaos that we seem to be living through when it comes to dealing with ungodly leadership, whether, whether it be whoever our president might be, or Congress, or local leaders, or even your boss at work, the answer to dealing with ungodly leadership is the hope of Jesus Christ. It applies to this too. And I want you to see that this morning. So get your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter two. And let's read our text, starting in verse one. We're gonna go one through seven. This is what he says. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, let me give you some context to where we're going here, okay? First uh, and Second Timothy, if you're not familiar with the books, they're letters from the Apostle Paul, and he's instructing his protege, Timothy, a young minister, on how to lead the church, specifically here at Ephesus. So you got the book of Ephesians, it was written to the church in Ephesus, Timothy's pastoring these people. Paul's instructing him there, okay? And so these two letters, if you read through them, they are great instruction for pastors and preachers on how to lead in a church. I spend a lot of time in First and Second Timothy over the years. That's, that's a great place to go. But it's also good instruction for churches on how to fellowship properly and how to do ministry properly and how to view church properly. And so that's what we have here. And in 1 Timothy specifically, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to deal with an issue that has risen up in the church. There are some false teachers who have risen up in the church and, and they are beginning to cause some problems. And so you can see a little bit about them. Just look at 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 3. Paul talks about them a little bit. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So there are these people that have risen up in the church and they're teaching something different and, and what they're doing is it's, it's causing people to take their gaze off Jesus. It's causing them to live in speculation and questioning, is this right? Do I believe what's right? This must be more important, you know, because that's what they're saying. It's, it's, it's a distraction. And these, these people are wandering off into myths, which are not truths, untruths, and endless genealogies, which I'll get into that in a second because that does mean something here. But that's what the warning is. And he goes on to talk about the more in verse six. Look down a little further. He says, certain persons, so you know Paul's got someone in mind. He's got a few guys in mind. He keeps saying certain persons. This isn't a general thing. He's like, Timothy, 
there's this guy and this guy, we gotta deal with them. Or there's these three guys or whatever, okay? So he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So these people are, are putting themselves in the position of authority to speak about godly things, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're saying they're teachers of the law, but they've not stud- they're not in God's word. They've got their own opinions. They've got their own theories. They're going off myths, as he said earlier. And Paul's saying they are setting themselves up to be teachers of the law when they don't know what they're doing, and they're doing it confidently. And people listen to confident speakers. If someone gets up and boldly declares something, they get attention. And so that's what's going on in the church in Ephesus. And so Paul says, I want you to charge them to stop it. Now, we don't know exactly what the false teachers were saying, at least not here. Paul doesn't tell us what the false teaching is. But it appears from our text today in 1 Timothy 2 that this teaching seems to be making the gospel exclusive. Seems to be making the gospel exclusive from certain people. Some people can be saved, some people can't be saved. Most likely, these false teachers were like the other false teachers that Paul had dealt with over and over and over again throughout his ministry called the Judaizers. They were people who were saying, you can't be saved unless you're a Jew or you're someone who's converted into Judaism. You become a Jewish proselyte. And so they go to the church in Ephesus, which is full of Gentiles, and they say, no, 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 you can't be saved unless you are circumcised like a Jew and follow the customs of the Jew, then you can be saved. So they've made being a Christian this group of elite, specially qualified people who follow a certain set of rules. It's called legalism. That's my guess, and that seems to bear out with what we're seeing here as to what the problem is. And so that somewhat helps us understand why Paul says what he does in chapter two. And so now to our text. I want to show you a few things he says here. First, we've read the text, and the first thing that we see in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We see that in verse 1. But if we stop right there, it sounds like a pretty general command. Just pray for everybody. Do this, this, and this for all people. Pray for everybody, which, which is good, and, and we should do that. I hope you're praying for other people. I hope you pray for everybody. But Paul makes it very clear in the following verses that when he says pray for all people, he has a specific group of people in mind. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let's read those again. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there in verse 4 we find out that the prayer for all people here is that they're saved. So Paul is saying that Christians should pray for all people to be saved. He's talking about those who are not saved and do not have the knowledge of the truth. He's saying pray for all people to be saved and know the gospel. Paul's simply saying that Christians should pray for the salvation of the lost. That's a good thing to do. And, and that's the first and general command that we see here. And it may seem like a no-brainer for most Christians. Duh, we pray for the lost to be saved, right? I hope you did that this past week when we had our week of prayer. But it needs to be pointed out that that's commanded in the Bible because there are many Christians who don't pray for the lost. Most of their prayers are centered around themselves. What's going on in their lives? What are their problems? What are their fears? What are the things they need done in their immediate sphere? And they don't pray for the lost. 
It doesn't cross their minds to pray for people in other nations that they've never met who are lost. But we're told here to pray for all people, specifically that they be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And then there are people who, who believe in God's sovereign will in such a way that they say to themselves, if God is sovereign, he's in charge, and it's God who saves, then I don't need to do anything in regards to the lost because he will save who he wants when he wants. And those people don't share the gospel, and they don't pray for lost people. They excuse themselves by saying God's got it covered. God is sovereign. I've preached that many times from this pulpit. And it is God who saves. But that is not how we respond to God's sovereignty. It's not a biblical way to respond to God's sovereignty. It's a misunderstanding. Because here we see clearly in God's word that we are commanded to pray for the salvation of the lost. And I hope you do. It's something we must do to obey our Lord. And quite frankly, folks, don't you feel like it's something, if you're really a Christian, that you want to do? Don't you? I mean, how can someone who is saved by Jesus Christ, and they see that they were a sinner, and they needed Jesus' blood to pay for their sins, and he died on the cross, and they hope in him, and how can someone who's done all that look at a lost world and not want them to have that too? How can a, a Christian parent not pray for their lost children? How can a Christian grandparent not pray for their lost grandchildren? How can a Christian spouse not pray for their lost spouse? How can that not be the, the priority on your head all the time? This is something that Christians are called to do, and I believe that, that we're burdened to do it. I don't know if you feel that. That's how I feel. You pray for lost people. That's what we do. So, so we've got this command. Let's move on a little bit so we can understand this better because the second thing we need to do here is understand what Paul means in verse four when he says that God desires all people to be saved. He tells us to pray for all people and later on he says that God desires all people to be saved. What exactly does Paul mean by that statement? Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you have. Because to understand the thrust of these words here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we need to understand what that phrase, all people, means. My entire life, growing up in the church, my dad being a minister, been in every Sunday school class and Christian youth group and whatever you can think of, I mean, camps, all that, I've consistently heard this verse used to say that it's God's will or desire that every person be saved. That this word all is quantitative, meaning all of the people. And that sounds good, right? I mean, we've probably said that ourselves. God desires all people to be saved. God, you know, wills all people to be saved. It's what he wants, okay? If it is God's will that all the people be saved, though, then why doesn't God get his way? And what I mean by that is that we clearly see in Scripture, Jesus teach that there are sheep and there are goats. There are believers and there are non-believers. There are those on the narrow path that lead to life and those on the broad way that leads to destruction. He, he clearly teaches there's a hell where those who will not accept the Lord and do not follow him will go eternally. And so the Bible's clear and consistent teaching is that there will be some who do not believe, who do not come to the knowledge of truth, 
who are not saved. And we grieve over that. We don't want that. But it's there, and we've seen that in life. Life bears that out. I've done enough funerals for people and sat by enough deathbeds trying to win people to Christ before they die to know some people do not, do not believe when they die. It's heartbreaking. And some of you know this too. But if God desires, which by the way, the Greek word there for desires is thalo, which actually means wills or willing. So we can say, this says, if God wills all people to be saved, why do not all people get saved? Why do some people go to hell? Why doesn't God get his way? Look on the screen with me in Isaiah 46. This is God speaking through a prophet Isaiah. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. That's what God has to say about what he wills. So if he wills it, it gets done. That's what the Bible teaches. There's nothing that God wills that doesn't happen. God is not a failure in anything. God is not incomplete in anything. God is not insufficient in anything, period. So if that's true about our God, and that's what the Bible says, that phrase, all people, cannot be quantitative. It cannot mean God desires all the people to be saved, because that's not biblical to say that. So that brings us back to my initial question. What does all the people mean? You see, there's a theology that believes it means it's quantitative. That's called universalism. Maybe you've heard of universalism. It believes that everyone in the end will be in heaven, believer and non-believer. In the end, it all works out. But that thinking contradicts the direct and clear teaching of the Bible. As nice as it sounds, it's not biblical. So what does all people mean? It's clear from the context of these passages that it means not quantity, but quality. It means not all of the people will be saved, but that all types of people will be saved. Which fits with the truth that we know about the teaching of the false teachers that were saying only Jews and those who convert to Judaism will be saved. Paul is contradicting them and saying, no, all. God desires all. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, child, adult, servant, master, all, all types. That's what that scripture's teaching. Why I've not been taught that my entire life, I have no idea. But it's helpful. It's good to understand. And this fits very much with what the Apostle John sees later on in the book of Revelation when he's given a vision on the island of Patmos and he writes it down in the book of Revelation. Look what he says on the screen here. Look what he sees. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the call, Christians, that we are to pray 
for all types of people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what 1 Timothy's calling us to do. Not just those people we think deserve it. And that's where it gets us. Because we all have those people that we don't pray for to be saved. But we are to pray for the salvation of our enemies. We are to pray for the salvation of those who live lives that disgust us. We are to pray for those who are of a different skin color than ours. We are to pray for the salvation of those who have committed heinous crimes. We are to pray for the salvation of those who practice ungodly ways and, and practice other religions. We are to pray for the salvation of those who persecute us. All people. That's the call. It's what we're called to do as Christians. And Paul knows he knows this is not an easy thing for, to do for some of us because there are all, the, all of us have those people in our lives that when we look at them, the last thing that we think when we see them is, oh, I hope they get saved. Or I hope they come to my church and sit in my pew and talk to me. I hope for that. Or I really long to spend eternity with that person in heaven. We have those people we can't say, we can't say those things about because we hate them and we dislike them and we disrespect them. And Paul says, pray for all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what we're called to do. And he knows that this will be a struggle for some of us, so he helps us with an illustration in verse two. And let's, let's look at the ver illustration. He says this, he says, for kings, let me get my page here, for kings and all who are in high positions. That's the illustration for all people. Of, of all of the different examples he could have used here, why do you think, as an example for praying for all people, he chose kings and all who are in high positions? He could have said moms and all who take care of children. He could have said priests and, and preachers and all who work in a church. He could have gone a gazillion different ways with that, but the illustration he uses is for kings and all who are in high positions. Why would he do that? Yeah. All we have to do is look at our situation today and we get the reason. They're hard to pray for. They're hard to think good thoughts about. It's so easy as Christians to look at the leaders above you and grumble to hate their words, to rebelliously refuse to submit to them, especially in our political culture today, all of this just seems to be amped up. All you have to do is pick your news channel and pick your party and you've got all the fuel you need to be angry. At both sides of the aisle, not just one, both. It's so easy to let our anger for our leaders cloud over any heart we might have to pray for their souls. It's so easy to excuse ourselves to walk around fuming inside and forget that we are Christians. We're saved by the grace of God and we're not perfect either. And we want others to know him. But that's what we're called to. 
No, we might, we might pray for our leaders. I mean, I've always been told, pray for your leaders, but, but our prayers usually come out in a way of, oh, we're praying for the election because we don't want that guy to get in there. So we're praying for, for, for who we want in office. Or, or we pray that, that God will change our leaders' minds. We want that. Or if we've got a bad leader, we're praying for God to somehow get him out of there. Whatever way you want, God, we're okay with it, you know. We, we pray those prayers. And you know what? Pray with the right heart. Those are valid prayers. I'm not negating that. But do we pray for the salvation of our leaders? Do we see the value in them coming to Christ? Does that even enter our minds? You might roll your eyes at this call. It might feel naive to you. You're like, you know, that's, that's great, Ben, but we live in the real world. Let's talk about what really needs to happen, right? This might feel too docile or inactive to just say pray for their salvation. You know, we, we need to more than just pray. We need to stand up. We need to speak our rights, right? Uh, we need to protest. Or we make a difference by giving money, so we got to support our cause or our candidate. Or we make a difference by our vote. And as citizens of this great nation, we have the right to do all of those things. And they can be effective and they can be good. But the number one thing that a Christian can do and is commanded to do from God's word when it comes to, to political engagement and citizenship is pray for the salvation of your leaders. Do we do it? Are we willing to do it? regardless if you like them or not, or agree with them or not, or are part of their political party or not. We pray for those on either side of the aisle. You may not have liked President Trump for the past four years, but did you pray for his soul? You may be upset that Joe Biden's gonna be our president, Kamala Harris is gonna be our vice president, but will you commit, here's the, tr here's the question I've been asking folks, and it's been interesting to get the answers, will you commit to pray for their soul for the next four years? Can you do that? That's what we're called to do in this text today. Understand what a gut punch this command must have felt like to the Ephesians. I mean, really understand the context here. Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. And to be a Christian then, during that time, in, in the mid-60s AD, okay, uh, you were living under the reign of Nero, the Roman emperor. What did Nero do? He persecuted Christians badly. There was a fire in Rome. It was a very destructive fire. And his answer to that fire, because he's a political guy, is whose fault is this? It's the Christians' fault. So he turned all of Rome against the Christians. We hate the Christians because they started a fire and killed people and destroyed things. And so that gave him an excuse to persecute them. So what did he do? He would do terrible, terrible things. He put wild, the skins of wild beasts on the Christians and set dogs after them, and they would tear them apart. He would hang, crucify, he'd crucify Christians all over the city and display them. He would burn them alive. One history book I read said that at night, he would use the burning bodies of Christians for the town's street lamps. This was awful, awful, awful persecution. It said that the apostle Peter was crucified during the reign of Nero. It's, it's, it's noted that, that Nero ordered the, the death of Paul. That's how Paul, the guy writing this letter, ends up dying, by the order of Nero. And so here you have Paul's saying, pray for your kings and those above you. Do you think if you're a Christian living in Ephesus during that time, the salvation of Nero is high on your prayer list? Probably not. Probably not at all. Well, I imagine they pray for him to stop. I imagine they pray for him to be stopped. But pray for him to be saved? <laughs> I, I can imagine there was deep distrust in their hearts and hatred in their hearts to pray for someone like that. 
So Paul says, pray for all people. And let me give you an example. What do you mean by all? Even them. That's the thrust of this command. Pray for the souls of all people, even them. Even kings, the, the, the worst, most despicable people you can think of, even them. And we all have an even them. It may not be political leaders for you, but pray for the souls of all people, even them, whoever, that fill in the blank. What is it? That's a good thing to think about. And Paul goes on to explain that it is through God's answer to this prayer that the path to Christian freedom is found. Look, look at what he says in verse two. He says to do this so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and, and dignified in every way. Quiet here, the Greek for quiet refers to the absence of external disturbances. I'm sure the church in Ontario, Canada, Canada wanted no external disturbances from their government. They wanted to have church and do it freely like they've done for many, many years. They wanted it to be quiet for them, right? Peaceful means the absence of internal disturbances. You ever had a guilty conscience? You ever know you're disobeying the Lord and walk around like that? How's that feel? It's a disturbance, isn't it? So we pray for our leaders' souls. We pray for all people's souls so we don't walk around feeling the truth that yeah, we're sinning by being arrogant and not praying for their salvation and not caring about their salvation. And we walk around, we, we, the answer to this prayer is also that as they get saved, this is the cool thing about this, as they come to Christ, it paves the way for Christians to enjoy some semblance of religious freedom. And we've enjoyed that in America for a very long time. We get to have church. We get to speak freely about the gospel. We get to send missionaries. We get to use God's money for God's people and God's causes. That's the fruit of God answering this prayer. And that's what Paul's telling us here. Now you may see all this and think to yourself, okay, well that sounds awesome, but I don't see it happening here. You look at the people, and you think there's no way they're gonna get saved. It doesn't, it doesn't seem feasible. And I don't disagree, it, it looks like a tall order for some. <laughs> you know, there, there's some people I think, man, they just, once they hear the gospel, they're gonna, they're gonna turn to Jesus, and there are other people who seem very hard. And I believe there is much persecution for Christianity coming on the horizon. I believe that's coming. That's, 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 I don't know when, I'm not standing up here making a decree, I hope it's not in my lifetime, but I can just, you can just see things moving, right? You see it. But that doesn't negate what we're called to do here and the hope with which we are called to do it. That's clearly spelled out in the Bible for us here. We are to pray for the souls of our leaders with the hopes that through their salvation, we will experience the blessing of their Christian leadership. The question we must ask ourselves is, will we obey God's word on this or not? Maybe you worry that if you're praying for a leader that you don't agree with and you feel like is ungodly, that you are somehow supporting that leader and standing behind that leader and that feels sinful to you, that feels dirty, you know? Pray for a, a pro-choice candidate when I'm pro-life, I, I can't do that, I can't do that. And I think that some people feel that way. That if we pray for someone, we're crossing that line to where we shouldn't go. 
And Paul addresses that here. Look at verse three. Look what it says. It says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our God. That's who Christians are living for, right? God. That's who we're aiming to please, isn't it? God. That's who our prayers are meant to honor, right? Not ourselves, God. So he's making it very clear, in doing this, you're honoring God. You're not crossing that line. So we, we commit as Christians to pray for the salvation of all people, even our leaders, because to do so is pleasing to our God. So this is the test, I guess, of where our loyalties lie in the form of prayer. Are we more loyal to our political party or are we more loyal to our God? Are we more loyal to our principles or are we more loyal to our God? These are real questions that I think every Christian needs to wrestle with in their heart in this world that we live in that's so divided right now. Also notice what else Paul says in verse five. He points out that there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and men and that's Jesus Christ. His point here is that we must pray for their salvation because how else are they gonna get saved? Their money won't save them. Their legacy is not gonna save them. Their, their whatever, I don't know, name it, it's not gonna save them. There's only one God. There's no other God for them. And then, even if they do say, I believe in the God of the Bible, which many of them do, he points out there's only one mediator to that God. And it's not their church attendance, and it's not their false professions, and it's not people surrounding them and supporting them, it's Jesus. That's the mediator. So he's saying we must pray for this. They must come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. He says those words, knowledge of the truth. They must have their eyes opened to their sin and their need for salvation from God's wrath on sin. And, and, and they need to see how God sent his son to die for their sin, to atone for their sin. They need to see, it's not enough just to know this, but they must believe and hope in this. We have this knowledge of truth, right? If you're a Christian, you have this, right? You get this. Don't you want them to have this? So we pray. We pray that God will send people into their path to teach them the gospel. We, we pray that, that God will soften their hearts and make them receptive to the gospel. And then they'll turn to him. And you might think that all this just seems impossible. Who's gonna do that? You know, if you go back in history for the past 60 years, Billy Graham was in the office of every president doing this very thing, trying to share the gospel with them. He would come and they would use him as a spiritual counselor. Some of them, I think, really found solace in his counsel. I think for others, it was a political move. But he took the opportunity to share the gospel with them. He was trying to put action to this prayer. There are people who will do this. It may not even be a pastor. There are Christians in Washington, believe it or not. Maybe one of them will share the gospel with the leaders. It's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. Go to the Old Testament and look at all the wicked kings throughout the Old Testament who did not serve the Lord, their dad did not serve the Lord, their granddad did not serve the Lord, and they started out not serving the Lord, and then they flip, and they repent. You see this several times in the Old Testament. Go to Daniel chapter four and read about Nebuchadnezzar, how God humbled a wicked, murderous, idolatrous, vain king 
And he turned to the Lord. And look on the screen what he said at the very end of chapter four. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I want my leaders to say that. That's what I want. That only happens when they get saved. So we pray for their salvation. God's done it many times before and he can do it today. So let us be people of faith who pray for God to save our leaders and hope in his faithfulness to do it. All things are possible with God. In conclusion here, as Christians, we need to see that this is the answer to our anger and frustration. And dare I say even hatred that some of us might have in our hearts. This is the answer. Don't get on Facebook and complain. Don't send out your clever little memes to prove your points. Don't walk around angry and complaining at work. Don't hold hatred in your heart. Pray. Pray for the salvation of these people. Pray that they see the gospel, that the blinders come off. That's what we're called to do. It's easier said than done, I know, but it's, it's not to be overlooked. We cannot be a people who stand on our own platform that says we honor God, and then when we see God's command here, refuse to honor it. That's called being a hypocrite. And that's what we're mad about right now. The hypocrites. People who said they would do something, they don't do it. We're no better if we don't pray for their salvation. We're no better if we dishonor God's word here. So let us do it. Let us be a people who seek to honor the Lord with our prayer life, even in this. So may God help us to do hard things. And this is a hard thing for some of us. It's a very hard thing. May he help us to resolve in our hearts to pray for the souls of those who are above us, whoever they may be. Like I said, we can think big, we can think president, we can think Congress, we can think world leaders, or we can just think about our teacher in school, we can think about our principal, we can think about whoever it is that's over us. That's the prayer, that they, they're saved, they come to the knowledge of the truth. And the ones who are closer to us, here's an even deeper prayer. God, let it be me. Let me be the one to share the gospel with them. Not just that you saved, let it be me. For some of you, are like, heck no. Why not? Is that beyond God's ability? Can God not soften your heart to share the gospel as he softens the recipient to hear the gospel? Read Jonah. Look how mad he was when God spared the Ninevites. He needed a softer heart. Maybe you do too. So let's pray about this. Be by your heads. Lord God, thank you for your word. Because as we know, it says in Jeremiah that the, the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all things, it's sick. We need your guidance. We need your help. We need your strength when we are weak. We need your courage when we are fearful. Lord, I pray that you make us a people who pray. We need to be people of action. You call us to action, but that first action is prayer. Let us to see that, and, and Lord, where we struggle in prayer, teach us to pray. Help us to pray the words you've given us in scripture. Form our hearts to them. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for the leaders, the ones who are exiting right now, the ones who are coming in in the next week and a half. Lord, we pray for all of them.
We pray for their souls, that they may turn to you, that they may be saved from their sin, that they may know the joy of the Lord. Let that infect their families. Let their families come to Christ. Father, I pray for a revival in your church, but I pray for a revival among our leaders. And oh God, we hope in the vision that Paul cast here of, of leading quiet, peaceful, godly lives. where we can, we can enjoy what you've given us and honor you with what we do. We pray for that. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.